The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Is it mad that the world burning is not in our, like, top three concerns? You thought bad news was done, but I'm back with more. And Alice Sneddon's Bad News Saves the World. I finally address the climate crisis and explore why no one cares. Watch it on thespinoff.co.nz. I can see the anxiety (laughs) starting to emit from you. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Kia ora and welcome to When the Facts Change. And they definitely have changed today. It's budget day. For me, that's a really big day. I I geek out on fiscal and monetary policy and the budget is one of those centrepieces. It's the thing that tells you what the government's going to do over the next year. It tells you what the government thinks about the economy and where it's going. It really is the sort of hard facts on the ground of your political economy. And this is a big one because it's the first one after COVID. It's the first of what Grant Robertson says will be three budgets ahead of the next election in 2023. And also it's a huge opportunity for the government to do some things that it really wants to do. Remember, it's got a parliamentary majority, the first time since MMP, and a very popular prime minister and an economy which is going gangbusters. A very low public debt, so there is no excuse really for not doing things. And today was the day we were going to see whether they were going to do some things. And they did some things. Today we found out that the government is going to increase benefits by between $32 and $55 a week. That's going to cost about $700 million a year. This is something that was recommended by the Welfare Experts Advisory Group almost three years ago now and has been a point of contention between... Uh, child poverty activists, those on the left, who've been saying the government needs to really do some things to deal with our child poverty crisis and our housing affordability crisis. In this budget, we didn't get huge amounts of detail on housing. A lot of that was given just over six weeks ago when the government came out with its big housing package, a change in the tax rules, plus a big lump of money for Kaingora to buy land to get houses built, and also some funds to help councils build infrastructure. So in a way, that part of the budget was gutted early because the government was under enormous pressure to do something on housing. Housing. The centrepiece in Budget 2021 is the big increase in benefits. And the government has made the point that this is righting the wrongs of the mother of all budgets from 1991. Let me talk a little bit about the mother of all budgets because I'm quite familiar with it and not everyone is. It was a long time ago and I'm guessing there's a whole bunch of listeners now who weren't born in 1991. Back in 1991, I was unemployed. I just finished my journalism course at what was then the Wellington Polytechnic. It's now the Massey University journalism course. Couldn't get a job for love nor money. Unemployment was 11%. Remember that unemployment in New Zealand right now is less than 5%, but back in 1991, it was 11%. There was a very bad recession going on right around the world, and New Zealand was still recovering 
or uh, dealing with the impact of the massive deregulation unleashed in 1984 and continued through to 1990, 1991. The National Party was in power and Ruth Richardson was the finance minister. This was her first budget and she pitched it as the mother of all budgets. The context here is that the phrase, the mother of all budgets, was in essence an echo of the mother of all uh, attacks uh, that had just gone on with the coalition doing air attacks on Iraq and Kuwait to uh, get back into Kuwait. So that was the phrase she used, the mother of all budgets. And it really did shock everyone because it included huge cuts in benefits. The reason I was interested... I was on the benefit at the time. (laughs) I was on the unemployment benefit and Ruth Richardson cut my benefit. It hurt. Luckily for me, though, I was on my own. I didn't have any kids. I was able to uh, rent a place in Wellington for just on $100 a week. The sharp intake of breath from all those people in Wellington listening. $100 a week for um, a place to live. Uh, So uh, it it was bad and it hurt. And it hurt others a lot more than me. Young families who were dealing with job losses in the regions, in many of the suburbs. Remember, our entire manufacturing sector had been uh, whittled away. The railway sector had been smashed. Uh, This really was an attempt to completely transform the economy. And a lot of people were left on the side. And those big benefit cuts in 1991 in retrospect, were the worst possible thing to do because they sentenced a generation to poverty and not just one generation, two generations. And we're living with the fallout now in the very high levels of child poverty, the problems with child health, housing affordability, because right back in 1991, the government, which had been for the last, the previous 40 years, building lots of houses, effectively stopped. Ruth Richardson put a stop to that. In fact, she managed to sell off quite a few state houses before she was eventually sacked after the 1993 election. So those benefit cuts in the mother of all budget are a key moment in New Zealand's political history. And today, the government has said, we have righted that wrong. We have reintroduced those benefit increases to offset the cuts of 1991. To be fair to the Nats, they were the first to do a real benefit increase back in uh, 2013 uh, under then Finance Minister Bill English. But Labor has uh, already done one real benefit increase and this is the second big one. It's not going to be delivered all in one lump. It's going to be some of it from July 1 and then the rest from April the 1st next year. So there will be some celebration from those in the child poverty activist community and the government is saying this could actually reduce child poverty by up to 33,000. But it's not a completely good story in terms of using the power of the government to improve the lives of many because many of those recommendations from the Welfare Advisory Group have not been taken yet, particularly around working for families. Uh, The government says it still has more work to do there and um, that... Uh, for me, actually says they aren't aware of the speed in which they could deliver an improvement simply by, for example, increasing the credits for um, children in the Working for Families scheme, opening it up to those people who are working just a little bit, and you could really make a big difference there. Of course, it would cost, and that is the key thing about this budget. The, the finance minister says that he has struck a balance between repaying debt and spending money on infrastructure and on reducing child poverty. The question is, where is the right point in that balance? 
Now, let's have a look at um, how much money the government could have spent if it wanted. Now, remember when the government was elected, we were looking at net debt, net public debt rising towards the mid-50% range, and $200 billion was the number we were talking about as, as debt. But the government still got elected. Since the election, the economy has obviously done much, much better than anyone expected. Now, that's important because when the economy does better, so do government income tax receipts, GST tax receipts, and corporate tax receipts. So since the election, the government's books have improved to the tune of $20 billion over the next four years. So that is the, the windfall, if you like, from a better-than-expected economy. Now, the question is, should the government spend all of that windfall in increasing benefits or spending on building houses or whatever? What we know from the budget today, Budget 2021, is that the government has chosen to spend about half of that $20 billion over the next four years, and has chosen to bank the other half by having uh, slightly less debt raised over the next four or five years. The end result is that our net debt is going to be barely above 40% by the end of the forecast period. Why is that important? Because places like Australia will have debt well over 50%, uh, the European Union closer to 80%, the UK 100%, and the US well over 100%. And New Zealand's credit rating has actually recently just been upgraded. So that means that the debt market community thinks that we can take on a lot more debt and it wouldn't cost much. That's clear too in the budget um, figures, which show that the real cost of our borrowing, so once you take out the effect of inflation, is negative in the next three or four years. That means effectively money is free to borrow. And what is really disappointing for me in this budget is when you look at the infrastructure spending over the next four years. It's true, there is an increase in infrastructure spending next year. And over the life of the budget forecast, the government has effectively increased infrastructure spending by about $4 billion from what we know they were going to spend in December. That's the new new spending. $4 billion over uh, four years years to 12 billion is not a huge amount of money, particularly when you're looking at an infrastructure deficit of closer to 100 to $150 billion, depending on who you're talking to. And the government could easily afford to borrow that money to signal to the construction sector and others that there will be a huge pipeline over the next decade of infrastructure spending to come and that companies need to gear up for it and get ready. So... What we have in summary in this budget is some welcome increase in benefits to reverse the mother of all budget benefit cuts from 1991. But not all of the recommendations of the Welfare Advisory Group have been taken up, which is disappointing. Secondly, the government has chosen to spend only about half of the windfall of the better than expected economy since the election. And when you look at our debt track, it is relatively low and borrowing costs are actually negative in real terms over the next four or five years. The government has not taken the opportunity to signal big increases in infrastructure and social spending to deal with the triple crises of uh, climate change, housing affordability and child poverty. 
We shall see whether they loosen the purse strings a bit more next year and, of course, in May 2023 before the next election. You'd have to say they would. And when you look across the Tasman at what the Australian government has just done, where it has opened the taps to reduce unemployment and uh, spend money on mid to low income people, uh, and this is a liberal national government, effectively a, a, um, a conservative government, uh, there is plenty of room for the government to do more work. That's my overall impression from the budget coming out of the lockup uh, here in Parliament. But in a moment, we talk to a couple of experts, particularly in the area of uh, child incomes and child poverty, and overall, the Māori economy and infrastructure. Stay listening to When the Facts Change. I'm Bernard Hickey in Parliament. Well, hello and welcome. Uh, we are in the Parliament on the big day, Budget Day. And for me as a fiscal and monetary policy geek, this is uh, my idea of Christmas. And, and I'm really pleased to welcome into our little, I'd call it a studio, it's really just an empty room somewhere in the bowels of Parliament. I'd like to welcome in Kate Prickett, who is the director of the Roy McKenzie Centre for the Study of Families at Victoria University's School of Government. And we also welcome in Hilmare Schultz, who is the chief economist at Burl, the economic consultancy. Welcome to you both. It's great to have you here on Budget Day, and you've both dug into these documents and had to think about what's going on. Uh, firstly, Kate, the big news that everyone will hear about with this budget is that the benefits have gone up, and the government have said, hey, we've done exactly what the Welfare Advisory Group said. What's your view of those big benefit changes today? Yeah, kia ora, Bernard. Thanks for having me here. These changes were brave and courageous and were needed um, and, and thank goodness that they were made because people, advocates, people who have been on welfare have been calling for these changes for many years now, um, even prior to the Welfare Expert Advisory Group forming their recommendations. Um, so I think people will be pleased to see that these have been in line with the uh, WIAG report, um, but also for families of children that they have exceeded what WIAG had asked for. So just going to the detail of these changes, we've got main benefit increases ranging between $32 and $55 a week, which uh, can be anything between 20% and 40% or so increase in benefits from a few years ago. And if you include them with some of the changes in the families package from a couple of years ago, uh, the indexation of wages, maybe you add in a, a winter energy payment or two, uh, there has been a significant increase in uh, benefits. Tell us why that's so important when it comes to reducing child poverty. Because, you know, throwing cash at someone, you know, that doesn't always work. Sure. I mean, well, in terms of the measurement of child poverty, right, when you hand cash to somebody, that increases their income. And so you're going to see people lifted out of poverty. But from a policy perspective, and what we know helps and works for families is giving families cash allows them to plug the holes in ways that matter for them, right? So, you know, there's maybe some families who are growing a lot of vegetables in their garden. If you had instead had them hand them food stamps, that wouldn't be worth it, right? Instead, they need gas in their car. So this is a really efficient approach for policy to be taking if they really do care about family well-being. And the government presented this as fixing the wrongs, righting the wrongs of the mother of all budgets of 1991. Just stepping back in, in history a bit, for those people who maybe were born after 1991, can you explain for people how big a shock that was and the long-term impacts of the benefit cuts that were brought in in that budget by Ruth Richardson, then a National Finance Minister? 
Yeah, so uh, you know, a popular um, phrase that people may be hearing today is that these are the biggest increases in a generation. And what's a really nice symmetry that we're seeing today is that the children who suffered during that mother of all budgets are now the parents today who will be benefiting from these changes. Those changes that were brought in '99 uh, were catastrophic for families. Uh, it, you know, it stripped the benefit rates right down to below poverty levels. So people were no longer, even if they were receiving the maximum benefit, they were no way out of poverty um, as today. Uh, also, uh, conditional cash assistance, right? So different eligibility criteria, which made it harder for people to get onto those roles in the first place and kick them off earlier. Um, so these were massive changes in our you know, social welfare fabric here in New Zealand. And Hilmare, uh, just looking back, the early 90s, those big changes that were happening in New Zealand, just put into context for us, you know, what it meant for our economy and what we're having to deal with now because of those changes. Kia ora, Bernard. And also, um, it is like a Christmas day for us um, uh, going through the budget numbers. I think also looking back, it is a significant step in having the benefit and having a significant proportion of the budget, $3.3 billion, going to the benefit. But it's also looking at infrastructure and investment in infrastructure. Currently, money is really cheap and our economy has done quite well through COVID. And what we have to do is also, apart from looking after our people, is creating a future for our people. So we have to invest in infrastructure, but productive infrastructure. Like in this budget, $1.3 billion for rail, I don't think that's even close to what is needed in terms of getting our rail infrastructure up and running. Significant investment in housing, in Māori housing, which is a great lift. But just a word of caution around that is we don't know who's going to build that. Um, we have this huge capital spend, but we know that there's currently not enough workforce to be able to deliver on this. That infrastructure area is quite interesting that you see over the next three or four years it actually a big drop-off in infrastructure spending, in part so that the government can keep its debt increases relatively contained. Just stepping back a bit from the detail of today's report, how could the government have done it differently around borrowing and investing in infrastructure? So differently is in terms of cheap money. We have not seen cheap money like this for a long, long time. So if you talk about debt for the next generation, we are going to leave debt for the next generation, but we also want to leave debt that can actually produce an income. So that has to be linked to infrastructure, creating um, higher levels of productivity, higher levels of income. They say, you know, it's much, our deep levels are much lower than other countries. We are not like other countries um, in terms of our capability and capacity to create jobs in the future looks different than a lot of other OECD countries. Just looking at the uh, spending in this year, it's around about seven or eight hundred million by my measure of by increasing benefits. If I was being a, you know, a really... Um, a hard fiscal type, and I said to myself, well, surely we'd be better off repaying debt than um, giving money to poor kids. How do you look at those decisions from a well-being point of view in terms of if I invest money in these poor kids, uh, pulling them out of poverty, less stress, less likely to be ill in future, more likely to do better in school, more likely to have happier, more productive lives. Is that the way 
maybe the government has looked at it or could look at it? Um, I mean, the evidence points to the fact that when you invest in children and specifically in, in young children, the fiscal benefits um, come back to you, you know, three, four, fivefold, right? There's a large, large literature that just shows that investment during those crucial early years um, really does pay off from a fiscal standpoint. And not to mention it's just the right thing to do, right? Ethically, we don't want to be, or morally, we don't want to be living in a country that we have children going hungry. So for, you know, from both a, you know, evidence-backed position, this is a no-brainer to be putting money back into families so that their children are fed, so that they're living in warm homes that are dry, uh, right? And so going to the wellbeing perspective, right, it goes beyond just the welfare reform that we saw today in terms of benefit levels. Um, there was uh, not as big a focus today, but there were focuses on uh, other areas, right, that we know contribute to child wellbeing. So um, in terms of expanding the Healthy School Lunch Program, a sort of modest expansion of the Breakfast Club, which basically a program that targets uh, low, low decile schools and provides breakfast for children so that they can learn in the classroom so they're not hungry. Uh, a lot more emphasis on family violence uh, in New Zealand, so increased funding for community-based responses and solutions. Right, so there are a bunch of other packages there that went beyond just giving cash to families, but also sort of recognising that well-being is a lot more than just also financial security. Uh, but it didn't go all the way to answering the Welfare Advisory Group's recommendations. Tell us what was missing from this package if they were going to deliver everything in one one hit from the Welfare Advisory Group recommendations. Yeah, so ab absolutely. The, the huge missing piece today was anything around the Working for Families package. Basically, they estimated that by doing this welfare reform, there would be a drop in um, the before housing cost uh, poverty index, right, going from around, I've got the numbers here, from around 19% down to 17%. And that's because in New Zealand, a lot of low-income families are working. Um, but that wage is not enough to lift them out of poverty, right? And so the Working for Families tax package is something that can actually, if we were to revise that, um, redistribute resources differently for that type of package, then we would actually have seen a greater drop in the poverty rate. So just to go into a bit more detail about what they could have done and what's been recommended, uh, my understanding is that if you were getting Working for Families, the Welfare Advisory Group recommended that um, if you had children, you actually get a higher credit. And secondly, that if you were um, working a little bit, you were able to still get the the, um, the working for families. Is that right? Yeah, so working for families is a tax credit program where it sort of rewards people who are in work, um, right? And so it, it's for families with children. You receive a tax credit back on your weekly pay based on how, what your income is. And so this typically, most families up to around um, 100,000 qualify for some type, but it's a you know, progressive tax where basically the more money you make, the less that you get back in terms of a tax credit. You know, so big changes that they could have made was to sort of increase the absolute rate of that uh, and doing it from an even more progressive standpoint where much lower income working families were getting a much bigger uh, credit back. So, Hilmari, why, for example, wouldn't the government use its very low borrowing cost to do this as well as go for the infrastructure? What's your, what's your view on how they see the financial picture and why they've chosen not to do that? Very good question. I would love to know. I think it's it's taking a very base case approach. Um, this is not an election year, so I think it's keeping it spending lower to keep the voter base um, and to make sure that they can actually spend some in next year's budget when it is an election year. So I think it's it's also building up in terms of looking at how do you keep that balance, uh, and I, and it's always hard and. 
people are always going to say you don't spend enough or the people who think they spend too much are always going to say the government's spending too much. You know, the future generation has to pay back that debt. Is that right, though? Do the future generation have to repay that debt? Because when I look at those numbers that we're going to see um, gross debt rise to $180 billion, that sounds like a really big number. But when I actually look at how much it costs to service, particularly in real terms when you take out the effect of inflation, the government's own figures actually show that there is a negative cost to the debt in real terms three to four years out simply because uh, interest rates are less than inflation. So should people be quite so worried about you know this huge debt that's going to land on top of future generations when our economy still seems to be growing? We've got upwards of $400 billion of GDP within a few years. Um, currently, I, don't, I think we should not be that worried about the debt levels uh, just because money is so cheap. Um, so I think for the next couple of years, we have a great opportunity to borrow, to be able to create something that will generate an income for the future. But it will always be, um, it's a good point to say that, you know, you have to service, someone has to service the debt. Um, so somewhere in the future, someone will service the debt. And there's already starting to reflect that inflation is going to pick up. And with that, interest rates will go up, meaning that money will become, again, more expensive. Just uh, stepping back from a purely economic point of view, what, what did you make of the uh, forecasts in that budget for economic growth and unemployment, you know, down towards 4.2%, says the government? Is it credible? Do you think New Zealand looks in a healthy position, at least economically, if not socially? I think economically it does, but it's that balance between wealth and well-being. If we don't get that balance right, then it's not going to work because economic mobility leads to social cohesion and social cohesion leads to economic mobility. So if we don't get that balanced right, it's not going to work. And that was Hilmari Schultz and she's right about that connection. I thought though it would be really interesting to ask Hilmari and Kate what they would do if they were finance minister. That's coming up next. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, on what's happening with inflation in 2024. Globally, inflation rose to really high levels. We saw inflation averaging over 10% uh, last year. Now central banks have reacted. They've tightened monetary policy. They've lifted interest rates to levels where it hurts. We've seen growth slow down and we're seeing inflation coming off, which is great news because we import a lot of inflation from the rest of the world and that imported inflation is easing. So half the job that we're trying to do locally is is being done for us offshore. The other half, the domestic bit, well, that's the tough bit. That's the sticky inflation that's coming out of a housing market, it's coming out of construction, it's coming out of service industries, and it's going to be hard to contain. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. 
A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. And we're back with Hilmari Schultz from Berl. And remember, I asked her what would she do if she was finance minister, and not just for a little bit, for quite a few years to come. Hilmari. Wow. Um, I think what I would have done differently is spend, of course, more on infrastructure in terms of making sure that we have a next generation that has an enabling environment. I would definitely have looked at the skills and education part. There's a significant increase in spending and skills and education, but also linking that to what our future is going to look like in terms of a carbon-neutral economy. So growing that part, targeting the next generation to get skilled in that areas that we actually want to grow. Because it's not only having a job, it's actually having a good quality job. In the numbers, it looks like they see benefit numbers will decrease about 10% in the next year, which is a significant decrease. So that means they are seeing or they're expecting people to move into higher paid jobs. What the probability is of that, I don't know. Yes, it'll be interesting to see whether the migration starts again. The government's um, having a look at migration policy settings and say that they don't want to turn the tap on. We'll see um, whether they can withstand the screaming and yelling from all sorts of industries who say they they can't do without the the foreign workers. Uh, Katie, I've made you finance minister uh, for this budget, and you can keep the job for you know as long as you want. What would you have done in, in this budget to do it differently? Yeah, well, could I just actually piggyback on something that um, yeah, Hemari was talking about before about in terms of who's going to be paying for this? Because this is the argument, right, that this is about on future generations. But I also just make the argument from a child development perspective that actually the younger generations are already paying for this now, right? When we are not making sure that they're not living in poverty, right? We're paying for it in terms of their cognitive and socio-emotional development. Um, We know that those things go on to predict their lifelong trajectories, like what jobs they're going to get, whether they're going to go to university, right? So right now, by us not investing in them right now, they are paying for this. Um, And when we're not investing in the types of technologies that we were just talking about, they won't have a planet to live on either, right? So um, um, in terms of spending, you know, if I were finance minister, it, <laughs> I would implement everything in the WEAG report, and I would definitely have been tackling the working for families tax package for sure. Because, you know, what we're finding in terms of this recovery is, you know, we've bounced back pretty well, right? The employment rate, unemployment rate is around 4.7%. Um, but we do see high rates of underutilisation, which, again, talks to a point that Hilmarie was just making, which is that, you know, these aren't necessarily good jobs or the types of jobs. There's a bit of a mismatch there, right? So we want to make sure that people are getting back into the jobs that they actually want and can make them um, thrive. And again, this continues on from historic patterns of what we call bifurcation in the economy, where it's harder and harder to get those good jobs or they're more and more tied to university-level degrees, right? So it's how are we providing jobs that work for families um, and make sure they can both balance both you know, their work and family life, but also making sure that work pays for them. 
Yeah, and it's interesting that uh, through COVID, we haven't talked much about COVID in the last 20 minutes, there must be some sort of record in this building. You've done some research into how COVID has affected people on lower incomes and women in particular. So give us a sense of, of you know, uh, how much of a, a hit to people's well-being, people who are struggling the most and are now going to get the benefits uh, of this biggest change in today's budget, you know, um, how, how much of an impact did COVID have? Yeah, sure. So we collected data um, during the nationwide lockdown in April uh, 2020. We went back to those same respondents in July, went back in alert level one, and then now we've just gone back to them in March to see how they're doing a year on. And there was, you know, from this budget, we were hoping that what we would see is that some of the people that took the biggest hit during the pandemic are the ones that are going to be rewarded now for their sacrifice. And I'm not necessarily sure that we saw that, right? So what we what we find in our data, um, and just having a look here at the numbers, I mean, those who were most impacted were those low-income families, right? So those on 50K or less per year, those are ones who reported that they were less likely to be back in the same job and making the same amounts of money that we were making pre-pandemic. Um, they were more likely to be unemployed and also more likely to have completely dropped out of the workforce. And then when you go down and look at those parents um, and you look by gender, right, we see it's that woman who took the brunt of this. So right now, those women, those mothers that we had talked to, uh, they were more likely to be um, unemployed than men, um, far more likely to be out of a workforce. I mean, when you break it down again by whether they're a sole parent or whether they're partnered, sole mothers really took the brunt of this. And while they weren't dropping out of the workforce because that is not an option for sole mothers because they do not have someone else in their household to support them. Around 20% of them said that they were still unemployed post-lockdown. Right, and so one nice thing, again, we saw in the WIAG uh, recommendations and that were implemented today, again, having that increase in sole parent support will be helping them. Uh, sort of a little, a small focus on that childcare subsidy that we saw, which is an indexation of a childcare assistance to average wage. So that will be helpful for them too, but we could have seen a larger increase in that. But another big initiative I don't think we've talked about yet was um, bringing back in the, uh, the, the training incentive allowance. And so this will be particularly helpful for, for women, right? Because a lot of these infrastructure projects, which we're calling shovel ready, we know they tend to favour men. Right, so we need something else there that is going to help women back into work. And so reskilling, um, getting their NCA qualifications, uh, these funds are going to be helpful for single mums. Yeah, so there's been a few things in there. A little bit of extra money for childcare, increasing that, and you're right, retraining. So bits and pieces here and there, and um, a start on um, addressing those uh, welfare advisory group changes. Hey, it's been fantastic to have you in here on um, Budget Day, and a big day in, in the history, if you like, of our welfare system. The government says that those 1991 mother-of-all budget cuts have effectively been reversed, or at least the cuts have been reversed. The fact that we still don't have uh, the indexation backdated, if you like, back to those days is not included, but a start. And we'll see whether next year, with the election that one year closer, whether some of these other things are dealt with. Thank you very much to Himalaya Schultz, who has come here from Burl as the Chief Economist, and Katie Prickett, who is the Director of the Roy McKenzie Research Centre for Families at the University of Victoria School of Government. Kakitano. Well, there you have it, Budget 2021. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was When the Facts Change, a weekly podcast from the spin-off brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank. And remember, please subscribe so you get every edition weekly. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the spin-off podcast network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off.
Kia ora e te iwi, te ai he Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.